0: Welcome to Future Hindsight, I'm Mila Atmos. Today on Future Hindsight, our guest is Jennifer March. She's the Executive Director of the Citizens Committee for Children of New York, or CCC, a nonprofit and nonpartisan child advocacy organization. CCC's advocacy combines public policy research and data analysis with citizen action. Under Jennifer's leadership, CCC has advanced and achieved legislative, policy, and budget reforms to benefit children and families throughout the city and state. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Let's start with some basic questions. What does CCC do exactly?
1: So our mission is to ensure that every child is healthy, housed, educated, and safe. And we like to say that there are three prongs of the work. The first is research. Over the last 20 years, we've built the largest local database on children and families in the country. And we use that data to illustrate how children and families live in New York City's 59 community districts um, and to identify barriers to their well-being as well as solutions. We also have policy staff that spend a great deal of their time examining state and city budget proposals and legislation, and we use that analysis combined with our data research to identify new opportunities to augment budgets, create new programs, uh, or change laws, all with the intent of ensuring that children and families in New York are healthy, housed, educated, and safe. The second prong is community education. So we run year-round advocacy courses because we believe that citizens, everyday New Yorkers should be actively involved in making their city a better place for all children and then my staff and I are all registered lobbyists even though we don't accept any government money we actually abide by lobbying laws just as a due diligence matter. So when you
0: say That every child is healthy, housed, educated, and safe. What exactly does that look like? How do you define it?
1: What we think about are really just the basic things that children and families need to thrive. You need a safe and stable home that's affordable and in good condition. You need to have access to high quality education so that you can be upwardly mobile. You need to have access not only to health insurance but services, you know, regular immunizations, pediatric visits, affordable care. So our job is really to identify where there are children and families in New York that lack those basic fundamentals, and we then lobby at the state and local level to try to make sure we're filling gaps, and we make sure that all children, and particularly poor children, are doing well. How do you gather that data? So our database is comprised of government administrative data. So it's data from state, federal, and local agencies, and it's all compiled in one place, and it's called Keeping Track Online. And
0: you basically take their data and then right. reanalyze
1: it? Yes. Yeah, so most state and city agencies and federal agencies disseminate a great deal of information. What we do is we put critical data data points on children and families in New York all in one place, so that individuals interested in a wide variety of issues can look at trends on infant mortality or maternal morbidity or how many children are reaching math and English standards, etc. So we combine the data in one place so that you can map trends. Uh, Create tables, charts, import them into your own reports and proposals, as well as um, clarify with visual mapping techniques where disparities concentrate across the city of New York. What, in your mind, are the most pressing
0: issues that children face in New York?
1: The interesting thing about New York is there are 1.8 million children here. It's a city with the largest population of children in the country. So on one hand, there's been an enormous amount of progress made in things like infant mortality, declines in child poverty, improvements in graduation rates, improvements in teen birth rates. But what we see in a city of this size is despite great progress over many areas, profound disparities persist. And Black and Latinos are disproportionately poor, homeless, not reaching the same educational attainment levels. Much of our work is around trying to ensure that the poorest children and families in New York have access to the fundamental resources that help them thrive. We're particularly concerned right now about family homelessness. There are 24,000 children living in homeless shelters every night. Most of them reside in hotels where they don't have a kitchen, they don't have laundry, They don't have a place to play they're very far from their school so they're not engaged in after school and uh, there are profound transportation barriers to their parents being able to work so that is one of the most pressing issues i think the city has to face right now and then there are other issues where we're hoping to build on some early successes of the de blasio administration he has created universal pre-kindergarten for every four-year-old and he's starting to expand pre-kindergarten for three-year-olds. But we know, without being too complicated, that the early childhood education workforce that provides those services are paid very differently if you're working as a teacher in a community-based organization, or a Department of Education public school. So we're working to try to make sure that teachers with the same credentials and education levels and licensing have pay parity, irrespective of where universal pre-K is uh, provided.
0: I have a question about the first point you made about homelessness. What is is he doing concretely? Sort of give an example of how you go through the advocacy and if it's successful, What does it look like?
1: The city is focused a lot on eviction prevention, trying to keep people in their homes. They are also focused on trying to get families out of cluster site apartments where there are not a lot of social services around them. Unfortunately, in doing that, many families are now in hotels, which is not good for the household head or children. So much of our advocacy is focused on if we know that... The city is trying to build 90 new shelters in communities. How do we help New Yorkers understand who, in fact, is homeless? Help them understand that the average head of household that's homeless is in her mid-30s. She's a single mother with extremely young children. And over half of the households that are homeless are working. Homelessness is really an issue about a lack of economic mobility, people that don't have a high level of education, who are working in sectors that don't pay a very good wage, and the housing costs in New York City have continued to increase. So, we're spending a lot of time and attention both focused on how do we ensure that these young mothers achieve permanent housing. But if they're in shelter for two years, how do we make sure that their children have access to things that we know help reduce the ch- trauma that they're experiencing and improve their well-being, access to child care, after school, making sure they have a primary health home, are seeing a pediatrician regularly, making sure that they're screened for basic developmental delays that most children are screened for at an early age, and doing more to make sure basic things like being able to cook and do your laundry and commute conveniently to your job are addressed.
0: Do you work directly with the homeless families and also with the city, or how do you do the advocacy?
1: So typically, because Citizens Committee for Children is an advocacy organization that does policy research and we don't provide a direct service, we work with direct service providers, uh, the legal community, and other advocates to create a coalition of like-minded people who can advance a common agenda around budget and policy proposals. So that's what we're doing now. We have a family homelessness coalition that we uh, co-lead with Enterprise, which helps develop affordable housing, and New Destiny Housing, who has a long history of providing uh, housing for women that have experienced domestic violence.
0: Do you also speak to city and state officials separately or in tandem, I suppose, with the the, efforts with Enterprise, let's say? So
1: with our partners, we identify um, a list of issues and priorities we try to advance. And then we spend our time doing basic government relations or lobbying where we're meeting with appointed officials and elected officials all year round. What is
0: effective child advocacy? When does it work best? How does it come together in the most ideal way?
1: I think it's when you have really a virtuous circle of a large group of people with a common interest in tackling a particular problem, the ability to not only have uh, troops on the ground, people working in the community, and beneficiaries of service being part of our advocacy, but New Yorkers at large who are willing to make phone calls, uh, make visits, write emails and letters on the issue. And then the ability to attract media attention as well, so that the issue is really visible in the news media. Um, We combine then external advocacy, loud types of rallies and letter writing campaigns and social media activity with mainstream media, radio, television, um, print media and then uh, government relations, meetings with elected officials. And in the best case scenario, that internal and external pressure encourages government to move. The
0: next question I have is not related to advocacy, but what are the most common misconceptions about children in poverty in New York?
1: Often, there's a perception that children that are poor are different than any other child, and that is not true. Their circumstances are simply different because their parents earn less. And those households need the very same thing that any child would need. A safe and stable place to live, access to health care, a school in which they can succeed. And the basic tenets that we know from years of research promote upward mobility. We try to help people understand how those issues really intersect. If a family member who's working has less than a high school education their chances of earning enough in the city of New York without other types of assistance to support that household are slim. So it's our job to really help people understand that parents, irrespective of where they sit on the income ladder, generally want the same thing for their children, and government has a role to play in helping the most vulnerable in society have a full and thriving life.
0: Yes, I agree that the government has that role. If you could explain to people that life is just as complex for people who are low-income as it is for people with high incomes. What would be the one thing that you would like to say to people to elucidate this complexity?
1: Well, a couple years ago, we've started to produce what we're calling a community risk ranking that looks at 18 different data points in New York City across the 59 community districts. And what it does is it looks at economic factors, housing, health, education, youth factors, and family and community factors, and shows you that poor children often aren't simply poor, but there are other risk factors that impede their well-being. So they're poor, their housing stock is in poor quality, which impacts their health. They're attending schools in which Fewer numbers of children are meeting basic standards in math and English. And so the risk factors we know from research, when they're multiple, the chances of long-term damaging outcomes on a child are profound. And so it's our job as child advocates to help identify what are the early and consistent interventions in a child's life and supports that are needed to really take the opportunity to combat those risk factors early and turn turn those long-term outcomes around for the positive
0: right the risk factors that affect children basically bear out for their entire lives as adults and they are less able to become the type of fully achieved adults in the way that we hope they would be I feel like that there's a big opportunity that is missed when we talk about poverty the long-term repercussions and the long-term benefits would be immense if we had less people living in poverty, less children in poverty, because they would be fully contributing members of our society, paying taxes, having good jobs, having good housing, raising healthy children.
1: Well, I would say that it's interesting, over the last decade, the healthcare community has started to understand and talk about social determinants of health, so community-level crime, Uh, poor housing stock, failure to earn a living wage, the presence or absence of domestic violence, those things actually impact short-term and long-term health. So I think we just need to think more holistically about things that we know help promote well-being, both for children and families, and try not to get so overwhelmed at the magnitude of the job, and really focus on practical, pragmatic things that we know will help provide stability and promote well-being, whether that's a housing subsidy that will keep the working mom in her apartment or expansion of affordable early education that will ensure that young person starts school really ready to succeed. Right. I have a question
0: about the universal pre-K for three-year-olds, and you were talking about wage parity. What is the current state and what is the ideal state?
1: In the city's expansion of universal pre K, about 60% of the seats are provided in community based child care centers who have a long history uh, in providing child care and early education. The other 40% are provided in Department of Education public schools. A school teacher with a master's degree working in the Department of Education has a starting salary that's about $15,000 higher than a teacher teaching in a community-based organization. And after eight years experience, that doubles. The disparity grows to about 30000 So what we're seeing is that teachers in community-based organizations that have the same credentials and licensing and meet the same programmatic standards are earning less than the city's median wage of 54000 And they're playing an instrumental role in making sure that the expansion of the program occurs and that greater numbers of children are benefiting from high-quality early education. We should pay teachers equitably, irrespective of where they work.
0: What has been the most impactful advocacy of CCC in the last year?
1: One of our largest historic victories was being involved in the Raise the Age New York campaign, which was a multi-year campaign to raise the age of criminal responsibility in New York State. Uh, Prior to uh, last April, any child, 16 or 17-year-olds, who had been accused of committing a crime would have been processed through the criminal court system as an adult. After years of advocacy with that large statewide campaign, We help pass a law that ensures that the vast majority of 16 and 17-year-olds will see their court case processed through the family court and be considered a juvenile delinquent and that more higher level offenses, violent felony offenses, will start in a youth part of criminal court where the judge is a former family court judge. So that will dramatically transform how children are treated before the law. It is designed to prevent the greatest number of young people from coming into the court system altogether and to engage them in community-based programs and really put them on a path towards education, college, and career, uh, contrary to the system that predated it, where they would be incarcerated with adults. And we knew, historically, that the outcomes were very, very bad.
0: Congratulations. That's very big. What propelled you to start this campaign as an organization?
1: Well, we had done years of uh, work in the area of juvenile justice locally and had an earlier success about making sure that youth in the juvenile justice system and placed in placement, which is a form of incarceration, and coming from the city of New York, historically were placed very far from home. They had no contact with their attorneys, their family members. They did not have education credits that transferred. And so when they returned home to New York City their outcomes were very poor. We had succeeded about five years ago in changing the jurisdiction to ensure that New York City would supervise their care and that young people that needed to be in placement in the juvenile system would be in the city of New York and what we've seen is a dramatic decline in youth crime and really incredible outcomes in terms of their well-being. That victory led us to think that maybe now's the time to begin to think about raising the age of criminal responsibility, because at the time, New York State and North Carolina were the only two states that still hadn't addressed the matter. And we were fortunate to work with faith leaders, the Children's Defense Fund, New York, and many other advocates in Long Island and upstate to really have a very robust campaign. And we were also fortunate that the governor felt that it was a priority as well.
0: Those are all sort of, like you explained, the virtuous cycle where change is possible. How did you first get into this work to come into advocacy for children?
1: I was getting a PhD in political science in the city of New York, writing a dissertation on welfare to work programs for women. And I happened to be hired by the New York City Council, which is the finance division of the legislative branch of government in New York City that helps negotiate the budget. And after many years there, and lots of solid relationships with external advocacy organizations who tried to influence the local city budget every year and meet with me about it, I thought I would make a leap from the public sector into the advocacy world because I believed I had an opportunity to really use both what I had learned in the public sector and my education for the force of good and I also as a young person had an opportunity to live in different parts of the world uh, in France in particular that exposure helped me understand as well how systems can be different and that both my public sector experience and my educational experience helped me believe that both citizen engagement and um, good, solid public sector work could positively make change in the city that I was choosing to live in.
0: That's very inspirational.
1: How do you recommend that people
0: in New York get engaged around advocacy for children?
1: There's several opportunities. You can go to our website. It's www.cccnewyork.org. You can sign up to get our e-news. You can take action online to write and call different elected officials for campaigns that are underway. If you have more time on your hands or you have a high school student in your household, I would encourage you to explore the community leadership courses that we offer. We also year-round have free lectures on emerging issues related to children that we encourage people to take advantage of. At a more local level, I encourage people to explore school boards, community boards, participate in participatory budgeting processes, be active on social media and Twitter. There are lots of ways to be heard. Nice. So what is the history of
0: CCC in terms of how did you become this organization that advocates for children?
1: So in 1944, a group of prominent New Yorkers, including Eleanor Roosevelt, Adele Levy, Justine wise Polaire, founded CCC because they were concerned about women in the workplace and the lack of a system of child care that would ensure that children were safe and had appropriate educational programming for them while their mothers were at work. It was a group of women who believed that citizens had a responsibility to create a city and nation in which all children had fundamental rights that were addressed. Um, We've remained true to our mission that citizen engagement is a fundamental way to make change uh, in the city in which we live. Since you mentioned that you
0: lived in France and you have seen that other systems can work differently, what is something that they
1: do in France that you wish we would do here? They have uh, a near universal system of early education starting at infancy and their health care uh, is nearly universal. Those two things are fundamental building blocks. We know that high quality childcare and early education permits people to work and having the comfort of knowing their children are in a safe place and their educational and social emotional needs are met that's something we're beginning to make progress on here in New York City, but we clearly have a long way to go. Access to universal health care also ensures that people have access to preventive care and that illness isn't an impediment to mobility. New York City has a long history of really incredible outreach on health care. We've had almost near universal health care coverage for children long before the Affordable Care Act, but we need to do a better job making sure that people are actually accessing primary preventive health care, dental care, vision, and that we uh, move away from using emergency rooms as a form of uh, healthcare service delivery.
0: What makes you hopeful for the future of children in New York?
1: New York is a city that really does fundamentally represent opportunity. It's an incredibly diverse city, linguistically, racially, economically. And we have a history of citizen activism, and that makes me hopeful. New Yorkers aren't shy about expressing their opinion. Activism has kind of swept the nation in the past year, and I think that New York really can show true leadership, not only getting out to vote, but participating in local participatory budget discussions and really raising their voices on behalf of children and families. Excellent.
0: This is a fascinating conversation. Thank you.
1: Thank you. CCC is an organization
0: that was started by a group of women, including Eleanor Roosevelt and Adele Levy, who believed that citizens had a responsibility to create a city in which all children had fundamental rights that were addressed and that citizen engagement is the way to achieve that. Staying true to its core mission, the organization creates virtuous circles of collaboration across advocates, media, and volunteers to compel government to take action. It is no surprise that poor children are suffering other risk factors beyond simply being poor, and that these all add up to long-term damaging outcomes for their health, educational achievement, and earnings. I was, however, surprised to hear of the staggering number of homeless children in New York. 24,000 children live in shelters. The average head of a homeless household is a single mother in her mid-30s with young children, and chances are she's working. When we think of poverty, we often don't think that many poor people are children and that the long-term effects of not addressing their needs have deleterious effects on our society at large. Children of all walks of life need access to continuous health care, safe housing, and high quality education in order to be the kind of adults who can contribute fully to our nation's culture and economy. On the next episode of Future Hindsight, our guest is Shafi Goldwasser. She's the director of the Simons Institute for the Theory of Computing at Berkeley, as well as the RSA Professor of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science at MIT, and the recipient of many prestigious awards in her field. There are ways to share information without actually giving each other the information. These methods originate from cryptography. They're becoming more and more practical these days to make sure that companies actually use them when they use your information the government might have to get involved. Or, as an individual, you should be pressing your government to be involved, or you should be favoring those companies or entities who make a conscious effort and publicly uh, make that effort to utilize these methods and don't just ignore it. Until next time, I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for visiting to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Tsumbu. Find us online at futurehindsight.com and listen to
1: us through your favorite streaming services.